Hey, everybody. I'm entertainment journalist Drew Taylor. And I'm filmmaker Charles Hood. And we host Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. But right now, we're about to launch our first ever universe-expanding miniseries. That's right. Get ready for Light the Fuse presents The Directors. We'll speak to filmmakers who have made iconic Paramount movies and get them to open up in a way that only we can. That's right. Listen to Light the Fuse presents The Directors, wherever you get your podcasts. What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. So how do you like giving the same interview 250 times? Yeah, well, I've done it before. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, you know what? You, it's interesting, isn't it? Atlanta was interesting because the, my first interview was with a, a black journalist from CNN who just really felt under siege. And so that was interesting. And um, just and my movie is very emotional. You know, it's very... Um, so she was sort of crying all the way through it. And then she was talking to me about crying. So it became one of those interviews <laughs> as opposed to me plugging it. Oh, I, I got to say, um, before, because uh, Joe and I were both at that screening at the, um, what was the hotel? Uh, the, the something hotel. The something. Some hotel. Yes. Screen and, uh, and at the London. Ni- it was nice and loud. It was, um, and I, I uh, my wife and I met uh, your husband, Paul, right before and had a nice conversation with him. And then right. um, when I walked out of the movie, he was the first person I saw. And I, we had this moment. He was standing there. I was like, I just want to hug him. <laughs> I, I love the movie Imagine so much. Imagine a movie who enge- that engenders that kind of feeling. Yes. Unusual. Yes. Aww. I was like, oh. You know, it's, it's interesting because the um, it, when I, I was in Dallas for a screening and uh, and the and it was for the American Film Society there. And a woman who runs it, she said to me, you know, she said, "We're your movies come at the right time because we're all a little bit, you know, we're all in a collective depression." She said, mm. "Yeah." And yeah. I and I said, and then in, in Texas, everyone hugs you, right? So they all came out of me, out of the movie hugging me, and. Um, <laughs> And I say, well, maybe what this movie is is a collective hug for those who need it right now. I think it's very nice. Texan, it's, very cheesy, very Texan. It's very well it timed, believe me. Yeah, it is. I actually, I've never thought about that, but that's the kind of movie that you make, and you you would just hang out in the lobby after showings just so people could. Well, hug it's, you. A, it's got a it's got a Field of Dreams vibe to it because it's about you know fathers and and sons and daughters, yeah. and yeah. Uh, and it's uh, it's a it's, it's a it's a family movie in the best sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely agree. Um, yeah, if it's not clear, we both loved the film. I'm, uh, oh, thank uh, you. And uh, very, very excited to talk to you uh, here on our... Okay, well, listen, I'm I'm not necessarily as eloquent as I normally am. And I just bunched some films together into groups. So let's see how the conversation... Oh, good. Goes. Wonderful. Yeah, we we asked... So so you're just going to go through kind of lists of, of kind of movies that inspired you along that the made, way. And movies that made me. That's Movies that called. made her. Yes. Oh, <laughs> that's one way of putting it. Um, so this is yes. So we're going to talk about movies that made me. Yes. But I'm 
I couldn't just pick 10. Was I supposed to pick 10? Oh, you can pick as many, can pick as, as, many, many as, as you want. And by the way, let me do a, as conversational as you are. Should we do it? We'll do it. Well, it would be nice to sometimes let people know. This is The Movies That Made Me with your hosts, Josh Olson and Joe Dante. We always had this guy. I feel like by the time people have gotten to the show, they're probably pretty sure who we're talking to. But uh, our guest this week is Gurinder Chada, who is coming to us from Washington, uh, D.C., correct? That's correct. I, not state. Um, currently uh, on the tour, talking to people about her uh, brand new film, Blinded by the Light. Uh, she is the director and uh, one of the writers. And um, uh, Gurinder's also brought us uh, Baji on the Beach, Bride and Prejudice, and um, I don't know this other film, Bend It Like Beckham. Was that no, a that's, sports that's an, film or that's something? That's an obscure that's film. Very obscure film. That. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, Anyway, we it, it gets the movies that made me uh, a recommendation. Seal of approval for Blinded by the Light. And Bend It Like Beckham, by the way. We, we approve of all these movies. <laughs> um, <laughs> but Blinded by the Light is uh, opening, if you're listening to it, um, on the day it drops, it's opening this coming Friday. Uh, and uh, we actually have a, a special adjunct episode of our show where uh, I sat down with Sarfraz Mansour, the writer of the book it's based on, one of the writers of the film, and yeah. we did a deep, deep, deep dive into our favorite Bruce Springsteen songs, um, which was just insanely geeky and wonderful. Um, but we are we are forcing Garinda to uh, play play our usual game here. So, um. <laughs> so when we play when when I when I'm asked to sort of pick movies. That made me, I think, like so many directors, you do this thing where you go, ooh, should I pick like really important movies? No, no, like, no, that's not God, what no. we do. We hate that. <laughs> oh, I Citizen thought, Kane, you say. <laughs> yes. But then I thought, okay, I'm going to pick movies that if they came on onto a screen, onto TV or something, yes, I would drop everything and sit and watch them. So these are these movies. So I went, that's how I chose the movie. Ah, wonderful. Like, it means so much to me that I would drop everything and just watch it. And um, so, and then I noticed that they're all in a kind of a group. They all make sense. I didn't mean this to happen, but they all have a theme. Oh, wonderful. So, yeah. Do you want, do you want to let us figure that out as we go? Or are you going to yeah, get that a mystery? Well, well, it'll, yeah. it'll become apparent. Maybe. It will become her. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to start, obviously, as a kid in England. And I'm going to tell you about the first movie that I remember, okay? Ah. And so I I lived in Southall in West London, which is Bendit like Beckham Territory. Mm -hmm. And my um, parents, my dad particularly loved Indian films. And on this... Um, I used to go and see a lot of Indian films when I was younger, and I just thought they were just full of Indian ladies crying all the time. You know, that's <laughs> what these films are. Just, everyone just cries, and then they sing and they cry, and then something else happens and they're still crying. And to me, that was my takeaway of these films. And they're very long, and, too. Is that correct? Yes, very yes. long. Yes. And my dad's favorite film was Mother India, which is the probably, if you ever did the top 100 Indian films, I reckon that would always come as number one. 
And it's a beautiful film made by uh, a director called Mehboob. And it's about an ordinary woman, an ordinary woman in India trying to get by. And it's all the struggles that she goes through trying to raise her kids and, and trying to just grow food to eat. And um, my dad would say, see, this is the real India. This is the real India. This is the real life, you know, not all the rubbish that everyone else watches. So it's um, it it's also very, uh, it's very beautifully made as a technicolor, you know. And um, so to me, it's associated with my dad. And, and uh, recently I did this uh, thing on BBC Radio 4 called Inheritance Tracks, tracks that I had inherited and then the same track that I would give to my children. And I chose one of the tracks from this film, actually, for that. And as I started talking about it, I started flooding with tears, you know, oh, thinking no. about it. I know. But it's one of the, it's a very emotional film, and a lot happens to this poor woman, and that's why she's called Mother, it's Mother India. A wonderful Nargis played that. So that was going on in my life, on the one hand. On the other hand, there was this new film, there was this film that I'd always wanted, that my sister, in fact, had wanted um, to take me to, uh, my older sister. And this film is a classic American film, and it was playing in the theatre in Ealing. Now, Ealing was very posh, okay? That's marked up from Southall. Ealing is, um, in fact, there's a line in Bend It Like Beckham when the sisters are meeting the cousins in the shoe shop. And they're gossiping. And then she says, can't, can't stop. I've got to go for a mani-pedi facial in Ealing. And so that's her putting the cousins down. So in Ealing, there was this cinema. And we had to get this bus to go to Ealing, the posh part of town. And we got to the cinema. Um, and it was a big deal for me. I was very young at this point. I must have been about five, I think. And we got into the theatre and I was absolutely devastated because the film started and it was black and white. And I was like, I've come all this way to eat <laughs> on the bus to see this film. It's in black and white. And I started kicking the seat in front of me in the theatre. Okay, how, like, how old are you at this point? Five. I think five. I was about five. Okay. And I was like, it's not fair. You know, <laughs> I was like, this is a disaster. This isn't fair. I have to watch black and white films on TV. Why am I coming here? And then about 10, 15 minutes into the film, of course, it goes into wonderful Technicolor. Oh, and I wonder what movie she's The movie. <laughs> <laughs> the Wizard of Oz. Yes. <laughs> so that was the, my first real memory of a, uh, of a movie having an impact on me. Mm. And the idea that I was so disappointed about it being something else. <laughs> and then when it comes to life, I was like, wow. And I remember like the fruit, the apples being redder than red and the leaves being greener than green and the munchkin, you know, they weren't freaky, those little people. They were like <laughs> cute and cuddly. Like I wasn't scared by it. Um, and then later on in adult life, of course, I read the uh, the very famous article that Salman Rushdie wrote about Wizard of Oz. Mm. I, it's the uh, immigrant's lament, the immigrant story. Um, there's no place like home, you right. know. And someone's sort of in this stuck in this place and always trying to get home, you know, but realizing that home is actually where you are. So. So that's the first one I'm kicking off with after Mother India. Wow. Okay. Did did you have the um 
Because at five, did you have the flying monkeys experience where they're terrifying or were you okay with them? Oh, yeah, you're right. I didn't like the witch. No, I didn't yeah. like you're the You're not witch. supposed to like the witch. Yeah, she's. Yeah, yeah. So that worked. <laughs> Director got that right. Uh, <laughs> um, I just think it was just, ma- it really was magical. And the poppies, I remember, everything was so larger than life. So even though there were the flying monkeys, because it was balanced out by all this sort of super hyper realism, it, uh, the message that I was getting was that I'm supposed to be having fun here. This is a fun movie. Right. So even though right. there were scary monkeys and there were there was the witch, um, whenever Galinda, whatever her name was, the, the, you know, the fairy came down, yes. it was like, oh, everything's going to be okay now she's here sort of thing. Um, so I, it wasn't a scary movie for me. It was just a, a complete feast for my eyes. I just, I, do you remember the, um, uh, back in the laser disc days when they came out with this huge box of wizard of Oz. And I remember one of the many audio tracks was the entire recording session for, um, um, Glinda, who's, who's the actress, Billy, Billy Burke, Billy Burke. And there must be yeah. 150 takes of her going, come out, come out. And it's, <laughs> it's, I, I feel like if you, if you really need information from, you know, you have 20 minutes to, uh, find out where the bomb is hidden. Um, with this terrorist, you just lock him in a room with and just play that. Billy Burke going, come out, come out, whatever you are over and over and over and he will break. It's, but I, yeah, <laughs> but a beautiful movie. Yeah. yeah. Very beautiful. And I do remember being deeply disappointed when the wizard didn't turn out to be a wizard. Mm. Like, well, you know, that's life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Age five, kicking the seat. I was like, Oh my God, I'm being told a fairy tale right. here, but actually it's turned on me. Yeah. So I, I was somewhere inside me, I was understanding subversion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, and that the movies, you know, were being made to entice us in, but they, 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 they disappointed us as well. That's interesting. I've never thought about, but that makes sense. We, we talk a lot about sort of things that you take in as, a child that helped form your worldview. And I've, I've always said, if I meet people of a certain generation, for instance, who didn't grow up on mad magazine, I cannot trust them, but there are all these things right. that were sending us these messages. And, and right, of course, yeah, wizard of Oz gets you at a very early age to look with a certain amount of suspicion at, uh, uh, figures yeah. of authority. It's kind of wonderful. Yeah. It definitely yeah. subversive. Yeah. Very subversive. So then moving on. So there I am sitting in England um, no idea that I was ever going to be a film director, by the way. That was never, never anything on the cards for me. Um, and apart from this wonderful love of uh, Indian films that my parents had, um, I used to watch on TV every Saturday and Sunday afternoons. It was always at 10 past two. There were all these English films, uh, black and white, grainy English films on TV. And I was, I, I just loved those films because to even, because I was living in England, but I was uh, an Indian girl in an Indian family living in England. So whenever I saw those gritty social realist films, as you call them, you know, they were, they were telling me about the world that I was in, but, but that I was not necessarily part of, Right. you know? And so I had a fascination for them and I'm talking about, 
films like Ken Loach's films, Cares. Sure. And um, the one I remember having a massive impact on me was Kathy Come Home. Um, which, which was a TV I, film. It was, yeah. yes. Because I didn't see these films in cinema. I saw them, uh, you know, at home. And um, Kathy Come Home was about a woman who falls on hard times and becomes homeless when she's got children. And there's a very harrowing scene where social workers come uh, to take her children away from her in a station. I think it was King's Cross Railway Station. And she's like, you're not taking my kids. You're not taking my kids. And the social workers are sort of faceless, sort of robotic um, uh, clerical workers who come in and literally take her kids. And then she's left there sort of crying. And, yeah, it was harrowing, absolutely harrowing. But obviously what Ken was showing us was the reality of uh, poverty in England in the 60s. And then he did the same thing with Kez, a little boy, you know, who put all his life's hopes and ambitions into this kestrel. Um, And, you know, these films were... You know, some of them were very harrowing. There were other ones that were like films like A Taste of Honey and Up the Junction. Um, and these films were very important to me because, by the way, that's not my phone doing that. It's not? <laughs> no. That us? I keep turning mine off. It's not me. Don says it to you. <laughs> no. no, I'll turn it off. Don, be polite to our guests. Oh. Sorry about that. <laughs> Sorry about that, listeners. <laughs> That's right. Joe's rings frequently during the show. He's, oh, he? he's got the greatest the greatest ringtone ever. It's up the junction fans <laughs> calling me up. That's right. Um yes, yeah, so um so yeah, so all these films like were about my life, but not really my life. Right. And I'm fascinated by them. Um one that I really, really love, and I've talked about a lot, is David Lean's film, The ha- this, um, Happy Breed. Are you familiar with that film? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I am not. Um, Joe, okay. Joe has seen so everything. Uh, no, he's not so seen this Happy Breed. This Happy Breed is set in a house in North London, and on the day a family move in, and it follows that uh, just after the First World War. And it follows that very English family and they and their future and their kids through to the beginning of the Second World War. So it's a between the wars movie. And again, what I loved about this one was it was colour. Um, and it's it, Noel Coward wrote the script, uh-huh. and so it's quintessentially English. Yes. And yes. I think the first line of dialogue is something like. Oh, mother, I'm that parched. Put the kettle on for a cup of tea. So, <laughs> <laughs> again, it's the that fascination for me about Englishness and identity and what makes you English, which is a running theme through all my work. Yeah, very um, much. Yeah, and so these were very classic English characters. Uh, the actress, Celia, of course, had been in Brief Encounter, played a very different role in that. She was very posh in Brief Encounter. Uh, and in this film, she was playing much more working class. So I was like fascinated with the way her accent was changing. Um, and it was very moving because they had these kids and each one, you know, had trials and tribulations in terms of falling in love. But it was very domestic. It was all, you know, in this two up, two down house. In, in But it was a house that I recognized. It was a house that looked like 
I could live in. And these were people that I would see in the streets and stuff, uh, or they would be like my school teachers at school. And, and so again, it was that, I guess it was me being the outsider, but not quite the outsider because right. I was familiar right. with this world, but they were very, very English to the point where I guess, uh, you know, I felt very comfortable with them, you know, and I, and I recognized uh, them as being part of me, I guess, although I didn't talk like that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so the whole Ken Loach films, I think, and, and um, this happy breed. And then later, Ken made an amazing film, which I think is one of his best films, Raining Stones. Mm-hmm. You familiar with that movie? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that was set during the uh, 80s with mass unemployment under Margaret Thatcher. And it was about an ordinary guy in Manchester just trying to get by. And whatever he tried to do, he just couldn't get a job. He couldn't, he couldn't make ends meet. And um and the, and the priest, he goes to the priest quite a lot, you know, to, uh, to you know, to try and seek solace. And the priest, um, you know, always advises him to keep, you know, have faith in God. And he loses faith in God, basically. And there's a lone shark that has a book that keeps coming around and terrorizing people. Um, it starts with an amazing scene where uh, the two, act, two lead actors are in a field trying to steal a sheep because they think they can make a lot a lot of money by nicking this sheep off this field and and cutting it up and selling the meat in a pub and and that's what's so brilliant about ken it'll just really take something very real and absolutely mine it for its pathos and its drama you know right, and it's right. funny because they're running around trying to catch the sheep it's very hard to catch sheep <laughs> and they're both like they're both quite chubby blokes you know um and and in the end they finally you know he the, the sheep keeps catching them one of them's got you know his, his trousers are falling down behind so he sees bum and and in the end they get they get the sheep and then they don't want to cut him up you know they don't know how to do it they're not butchers and then they have to go and get a butcher to do it so it's stories like that but but it's very very um it was very poignant at the time in the 80s when there was so much mass unemployment and and the, and the twist if you like, is that finally the loan shark, um, as if he gets killed or something happens to the loan shark, and and our, our hero ends up with the book with everyone's debts in it, and he goes to the priest and says, you know, what shall I do? And the priest takes the book, I think, and the priest rips it all up. And so it's a, it's justice, you know. Anyway. It's an off, it's a film that not many people know about and hear about, but I think it's one of Ken Loach's best films ever. It's terrific, and yeah. and you remind me. It, and if this is on your list, and I'm getting out of myself, I'll cut this out. But um, uh, Bill Forsyth's uh, Sinking Feeling. Oh yes, yes. You're, you're making me think of you know they they uh, you've seen this yeah where um uh, these these poor working class Scottish kids are going to rob yes. a bunch of sinks out of a factory because one of them has noticed that sinks go for you know whatever twenty pounds. And if they steal a hundred yeah. of them, they'll make 2000 pounds. It's kind of the, yes. the thinking behind it. That's a great film. And I forgot to put that on my list, ah, but good, good, yes, good. but you're right. It's that same thing. It's sort of gritty social realism, but with comedy. But that, that one with comedy. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, Reading yeah. Stones has come in. And that singing and that Bill Fassad is so good at that. I mean, that is absolutely one of his best films. And and then there's the guy who's cooking, who's making money as well by cooking, right? Right. And the snack. Yeah. Oh no, that's the other film. Oh no, that's no, that's the, the guy, um, um yes. That's Gregory's girl. Gregory's yeah. girl. Yep. But yeah. a lot of the same people show up in it. It also has one of my favorite lines where they're going to steal all these sinks. And one, one, one kid says to the other, what are you going to do after the job? And he goes, I'm going to sit back and live off my ill-gotten drains. <laughs> That's it. So I don't know how long we've got. Should I move yeah. on? <laughs> no, I'm, we're, we're, we're great. We have as long as you've got. Okay. So then, um, <clears throat> So then around that time, this uh, another Indian film came out. And this time, this was an Indian film that wasn't totally about my parents or my parents' generation. And it was called Burub or Bacham, East or West. And this was a Bollywood film, but it was set partly in England. Oh. So now, now I was going from Ken Loach and I was thinking, what the heck is this? And it was a very Bollywood Indian version of England. So all the, so, and it was about this chap called Bharat, which means country. Um, and Manoj Kumar was the director and he also played Bharat. And he comes to, he's, he's the son of a freedom fighter in India. And, and his dad's best friend was also a freedom fighter. And he he's coming to England to study, and he's going to stay with his dad's best friend. But when he gets to England, his dad's best friend has become very anglicised, and he's got children who are one's a hippie and always wears flower power like clothes, and the other one's a, a, an actual woman who has bleached blonde hair, min, wears mini skirts, and has always got a cigarette in one hand and a glass of whiskey in the other. And so the idea is that they become very westernized and have lost their kind of cultural roots. And that film did have a massive impact on me because I was like, well, we're not like that. We're not even allowed to cut our hair. Never mind bleach it blonde. We're not allowed to wear miniskirts. And it was this sort of weird, first time I was really looking at representation, if mm. you like, yeah. and how someone yeah. like me was represented on screen. And it was this very twisted version of what we in Britain, Indians in Britain, were like to Indians out of, uh, you know, in India. And, um, you know, so, um, and it's very, there's funny moments in it, but it's very nationalistic. And um, the director, Manoj Kumar, was very good friends with Indra Gandhi. And he actually was tasked with the idea of building India back up after, you know, 300 years of British rule, you know. So a lot of his films were very nationalistic and were very much about restoring the faith in all things Indian. And so this really was an attack on the West and, you know, people like my parents who were raising kids in the West to remind them to not lose their roots. And there's there's a funny moment in it where so there's all these scenes like on boats down the Thames where everyone's going doo -doo -doo -doo. it's a bit Austin Powers actually you know <laughs> and they're all sort of dancing and they're all like wow freaky man 
and and they've got like you know John Lennon glasses on and and it's all hippie hippie London and there's this um one of the guys who's become very western has abandoned his uh his his Indian wife and the father played by Umbakash great actor there's a scene outside Euston station actually um Umbakash is trying to get the westernized guy to go back to his wife and he won't go and Bharat is trying to help the westernized guy to see the light and then all of a sudden if you've ever been to london and been to oxford street you'll know there's the harry krishnas right yes uh you were kind of white harry krishnas who go down the street you know with drums going harry rama harry krishna and so there's this scene where the harry krishnas go down the street and and on prakasas see you know even here in england the magic of india and indian faith you know doesn't you know travels far or something like that and i, I remember thinking oh my god and cuz these guys are real pain in the ass all over london you know giving up to bad day anyway it was like again what was interesting for me was that idea of um identity uh which is of course right. another theme in my work is multiple identities having multiple identities and the idea of being indian doesn't mean one thing it means so many right. different things so purbo patch was a film that i referenced in my very first film bargy on the beach mm. um and i in bargy on the beach there's a character um asha who kind of is having a sort of midlife crisis and is a mother and a wife and she wants to be more than that and so she so things that bother her she imagines them in terms of movies and so i referenced purba bachum in one of her movies where one of the characters in the film is you learn is a young indian woman who's become pregnant by her black boyfriend and uh, in my movie days and the way when she learns about this she goes into a, a fantasy of purba bachum and so i took a scene from that film with my actress is pregnant who walks into a temple uh with a glass of whiskey and a cigarette <laughs> you know and a big belly and very i knew when i was doing it no one was going to know it very few people would ever reference it very few people would know what i was doing but i just thought uh, it was something that i wanted to reference and i guess that was me just sort of finding my voice it was in my my very first film sure um, well, it sounds too, it's, I'm really interested by, I mean, it, it sounds like this was the first film you saw that at least pointed its camera at a life that resembled your own, but it was still in a sort of interesting way being made by people outside that life. Exactly. Exactly. And which was, which was more, um, Charlie, what's the word? Like when you're watching just a, you know, one of those kitchen sink dramas where everyone's mm -hmm. white. Or you're watching this which one is more distancing to you was there was it easier to kind of key into tom courtney than <laughs> well that's interesting this sporting life um tom courtney all these actors richard harris you know they were familiar to me as right. as the country right. that i was living in but was not entirely part of and burba pechum was well this is this is being made by people and features people that look like me but it's not truthful right. right so they both had pros and cons yeah 
Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Well, or call she, the police. Or call the police, like she should have, <laughs> exactly. What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. But I'm going to segue to America now, okay. uh, and I'm going, and I'm going to do it. You know, I started my career in in, in broadcasting as a radio news reporter. Oh, okay. that's how I. Yeah, I was a radio news reporter, and I and I my first proper job was reading the travel and the weather news on BBC Radio. Um, so, <laughs> so I'm segueing. <laughs> um, so when I made Bargy on the Beach um, in '92, I was you know, I I was given a break. Actually, in fact, actually what happened was in the in the 70s and 80s, and of course you've seen Blinded by the Light, so you know that world of 80s, there was a lot of dissension, a lot of, um, there were the riots, you know, mm-hmm. young people uh, uh, who were British, Asian, whose parents had come from outside were now coming to Britain, uh, had now come to Britain, and, and we had been born there or raised there. And while our parents were putting their heads down and saying, um, you know, we have a back home, don't make any fuss, get on with it. People of my generation were going, well, hold on a minute, we're British. Where's our place at the table? You know, and and there was a lot of um, right wing, uh, the National Front, you know, had, had grown and there were a lot of young uh, black guys being harassed. And in Southall, where I grew up, the National Front decided that they were going to march through the streets of Southall. And for the first time, the Asian community said, right, we are not going to put up with this. This was 70s, late 70s. And all the young people came out on the street and said, no, enough's enough. This is our home too. And it was a it was a massive coming of age for the community. And the National Front were, then, were protected by the police. But um, basically, it was a massive riot because uh, they wouldn't let the National Front march. But then the police came after the Indians, the Asians, and they all scarpered because they needed streets. And people sort of started hiding them in the houses and stuff. And in the end, the National Front were going to march through the main street and end up in a pub at the end of uh, the main street, which was called the Hambra Tavern. And what happened was they, they couldn't march, but they... Uh, and and people um, set the Hamburg Tavern on uh, on fire, you know, as a message to say, you're not welcome. This is our town. This is our territory. Go away. So that was a sort of big coming of age moment for the for for the Asian community in Britain, and um, and claiming ourselves and you know part of our identity. And we were still working on that. And then what then started happening was people like myself. Um, my generation started coming up with a whole new music scene 
called the Bhangra music scene. Now, in Blinded by the Light, there is a scene in the daytimer. Uh, yes, daytimer. the daytimer. Yeah, yeah. That was wonderful. So that's when where that music was played. So it was traditional Punjabi dance music and folk music that our parents would listen to, but fused with pop music, hip hop, you know, acid, jazz, all kinds of dance tunes, uh, Western dance tunes. And it was that fusion of that music that created a new identity that was British Asian. And, and that music had a massive impact on me. And that's how I got my identity. And I was a journalist, but at that point I said, I want to make a film about how important this music is to me mm-hmm. and my identity. And so that's when I made my very first film with a grant from the British Film Institute. And that film is called I'm British But dot dot dot. Um, and it's about that music scene. And I interviewed so it was about the music, but also identity. And I interviewed four young Asians and asked how they would describe themselves, would they describe themselves as British? And the the the, tr- the great thing about that film, actually, I don't even know how I came up with it, but I did, um, was I interviewed four young Asians, one from Scotland, one from Northern Ireland, one from England, and one from Wales. And so suddenly you had these brown faces on screen, and I was saying, Are you, how would, would you describe yourself as British? And the Scottish girl said, um, no, I prefer to be called a Scottish Pakistani rather than British. And then the same, and then the same with the Northern Irish kid. He was like, Northern Irish, that's how I see myself. And suddenly everyone was like, oh, my God, race, it's not this. Right. It right. can be all these different things. So I'm, I made that film. And... A wonderful woman at um, Channel 4 at the time, Karen Bambra, she saw my film and she plucked me up and she said, we need to nurture this voice and you need to come over and I'm going to help you make a feature film. And I said, I've never been to film school. I don't know how to do it, really. (laughs) And she said, don't be silly. I'm going to help you. And she gave me a short to do. And I did a short, and then I basically learned on the job on Barge on the Beach. And one of the things that I was so shocked about with that film was how popular it was in America. Like, it, I had, it became a cult film. It played at the Angelica Theatre in New York for a long time. And, um, and everywhere I went, everyone I spoke to, people, Americans would say, oh, it reminds me of my Jewish grandmother. It reminds me of this. It reminds me of that. And suddenly who I was became everything and everyone. Right. And, and I remember, you know, I remember that having a massive impact on me uh, in America. Um, but one of the letters I got from, uh, I was meeting some, a writer and, and they said, look, someone in the senior film, they really love it. They want to talk to you. And um, and I read the letter and it said, loved your movie, can I buy you dinner? And that was John Landis. Oh. Um, <laughs> friend of the show. Friend of Joe's as well. Yes. And so I was like, oh, my God, John Landis. Oh, my God. You know, because, of course, Trading Places, Coming to America, Blues Brothers, all these films had meant a lot to me growing up. Mm. And also... Um, American wealth in London, because here was another version of London by an American 
that was my London, but it was like a Hollywood movie. And I was like, wow, this is something else. And the scene in the theatre at the end of that movie in the cartoon cinema in Trafalgar Square, I used to go to that. I went to that as a little girl in that cinema. So when I saw that on screen, uh, it, it, it absolutely blew my mind. I was like, wow. London did a big movie like this. I think when the uh, when the cartoon cinema disappeared, oh, the heart of London went out with it. As far as I'm concerned, <laughs> uh, yeah, quite right, quite right. But then, so I wanted to mention John because he's been he's so kind to me, and and we still remain friends. But there were these these American films. I mean, obviously, there's lots of Hollywood films and stuff, but there's groups of films from America that I'm going to talk about that meant a lot to me. And um, as a kid, uh, musicals, 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 they were my kind of escape into the magical world of cinema, but still saying something. And West Side Story, I used to walk around singing those songs and waving my skirt around, you know, um, just to see those lives depicted in that way on screen was, you know, I was like, wow, they're making films about Puerto Ricans. Wow. It, it was like, it was the first time that I'd seen culture in that way, it displayed in that way in a big Hollywood movie. And, um, so that was, uh, and I remember all the fuss because uh, 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 the actress was not Puerto Rican. Right. <laughs> Maria. Um, Natalie yeah, Wood. I remember, like, Natalie Wood. I remember all the fuss about her. And I was like, oh, but she looks it and she sounds it. It's okay. I mean, I'd think differently now, obviously. But at the time, I, you know, I remember that being a big fuss being everyone being having a big problem with that but I was thinking well at least you're on the screen at least that community is being seen right so again like it for me it's all again it comes back to representation and and what you see as a reality and not as a reality um and I think yeah that that film had a great impact because it's also the songs like America, you know, the the, the, Amer- the migrant lament of uh, America, you know, what everyone was singing about. Those that's that's what we sang about. That's what my life was about. My parents' life was about, you know, coming to Britain. It was the same. It was like just seeing the emotions and the and the thoughts of the of immigrants on screen in that way. And by the same token, I also really really loved Fiddler on the Roof. Um, again, because it was about the other, the other, you know, wanting to be mainstream, uh, which goes right back to my childhood, actually, you know, and I think with Fiddler on the Roof, um, I mean, there's, I mean, the music was incredible and the song and dance sequences were always very, um, uplifting, but there was always the political undertones. And and also that was true of Sound of Music as well. And The Sound of Music was a film that I went to see in the cinema in Southall. And we loved it. Me and my sister, we loved it so much that we went and hid in the toilets and then waited for the next show and then watched it again. 
<laughs> yeah, that's the first film I did that to. <laughs> um, but again, they were sort of magical escapism, but they all but all these films, you know, have a dark political undertone. Which was my life. That was my life, you know. Yeah. I would have magic and I'd have joy, but there was always a dark undertone. Which is one of the things I, I loved about Blinded was the, the political context. I mean, you're very uh, you you embrace it. Um, I also want to, there's a great, you have a great poster of Margaret Thatcher and I have to feed, I, you must have searched through tons to find just that image because I won't spoil anything, but it's a perfect shot of Margaret Thatcher if you feel a certain way. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My production designer was very keen on using that image and I yes. still think it's a bit much. He said, Corinna, please, I beg you, I beg you, please, can we use it? Um, and so we did. But um, yeah, you know, people forget the 80s, 70s and 80s were very brutal times uh, in England. And, you know, Margaret, especially for young people, because that people were just coming out of school and going on the dole. Unemployment was a way of life. Whole tracts of Britain's working cities um, had been shut down and with no plans. So people were just marching for jobs on London and saying, we want jobs. We don't want to be on the dole. And the very fabric of the of the country had sort of disintegrated, you know. Um, and I think we're still feeling the effects of that today. Um, and so in Blinded by the Light, I wanted to make that very visceral, that sense of uh, depression yeah. that people yeah. went through, particularly young people. Um, but I always like to show that yes, life sometimes is a struggle, but we do have joy in our lives too. You know, there is joy as well. And um, I was um, very aware of, you know, civil rights movement in, in America and the struggle in America. And so when this one film came out, I remember being in the cinema watching this and my heart absolutely singing for joy to see this film because I had never seen anything like it before. And I was like, wow, this film is full of so much heart and fun and laughter. When when you see the other side normally and you see this, it, it, it definitely had a big impact on me. And that was Car Wash. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Car Wash is a great movie. It does not get the love it deserves, I think. No, no absolutely. It, I mean, it was an ensemble film. It had so many heartfelt stories going on. The storytelling in that film is incredible. Yeah. And the way, uh, you know, it, the story, I haven't seen it for years. I mean, I've not seen it for about 40 years or something. But I remember some elements in it so vividly. You know, the guy who's just trying to get by as he's come out of jail. And, you know, and in the end, the way he breaks down, that was so moving. And then the uh, the two the brothers, the twins, right, who did everything at the same time. Right, so right. You know, and everyone was, you know, and people were commenting on, why are you doing that? You're pandering to a stereotype by behaving like that. And they're like, well, that's how we get on sort of thing. You know, what a clever movie. Um and obviously, Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing was a great movie, but that came years yes. later, you know. And I think this film really needs to, people need to go back and examine this film. Yeah, I, I 
I saw it when it came out and it was, you know, it was this fun movie with a soundtrack we had all bought, at least the singles. Yeah. And um, went back to it about two years ago. And have you watched it's it recently? It's pretty bouncy. It's, but it's, it's like an Altman film. It really yes. is a kind of, it's, it, you're just sitting there going, wait a minute. I thought this was this dopey pop comedy when I was a kid. And now it's like, no, there's also weirdly written by Joel Schumacher. Right, that's right. Not not where you expect to uh, get any kind of uh, particular insight into um, (laughs) the affairs of working people. And uh, (laughs) yeah, I reckon the actors had a lot to do with it. I I bet they did. Yes, (laughs) but I mean, I do think that's one of the underrated American films. Oh yeah, yes. And sitting there in England watching that film about the Black American experience that had so much life and joy. Uh, to it was, um, yeah, it, it absolutely influenced me enormously and blew my mind. Um, so um, the other film, and I'm going to link two films together actually here. Uh, the other film that I loved around that time was Desert Hearts, mm. which was such a beautiful love story. Um, and I'm going to link that with Brokeback Mountain, oh, okay. which I think is still probably the best love story I've ever seen on screen is Brokeback Mountain. Um, so beautifully told and so nuanced. And it's a perfect love story, I think, in the way that the uh, characters unfold and and know when to hold back and when to give. And and I think Ang Lee, I do like Ang Lee a lot as a director, and I think this is a, a masterpiece in, 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 a love, in how to tell a love story, uh, Brokeback Mountain. But I think Desert Hearts was equally uh, a beautifully told love story, which um, was incredibly empowering. Actually, I think at the time I found that a very empowering love story and a lot of fun and a lot of great lines, you know, a lot of great dialogue in it. She just reached in and put a string of lights around my heart, um, you know, because the, 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 the older woman who's not into her friend having a lesbian relationship is lamenting the death of her husband at the beginning of the movie and she says to him what made you love him and she says i know he just reached in and put a string of lights around my heart uh, and then later on she's saying well how can you love this woman what is it about this woman and she just says i know she just reached in and put a string of lights around my heart and this was at the time of, i think this was pre well i think this was um uh it was the when was that movie? It was eighties, right? As well, Desert Hearts. Uh, Eighty-five. Eighty-five. There we go. Yeah. So the whole you know gay community was under a lot of scrutiny at that time, and I think there here was a a film again about outsiders, but taking control of their own lives, their own stories, and allowing themselves to be celebrated, as well as um, you know. I think the other thing about uh, about Desert Hearts, and in a way, Brokeback Mountain too. You know, there are films that I categorise being from the inside out and from the outside in. Mm-hmm. You know, and people who have those experiences have such a great insight into them 
So from the inside out, you know, they're made from the inside out. And both those movies, even, I mean, what's amazing is Ang Lee is not gay, you know, but. Nor, nor is Larry McMurtry or Diana Osana. I mean, it's a, yeah. Yeah. But they both so felt like they were from the inside out, those movies. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. But that's, that's the job, really, isn't it? To, to you know. Yes. Insert yourself into the shoes of someone who isn't you and communicate that to an audience from preferably, hopefully from the inside. Yeah. But you've got to be a special person to be able to, to do that. Well, you know, you've got to be able to really go in and really understand that world and that community. I think Norman Jewson does that really well. Mm. He's one of my favorite directors. Um, and yeah, everything he does ha- really has a lot of integrity, yeah. and yeah. and that he's gone that extra mile to really understand the world of the uh, of his characters. Yeah, I just uh, um, watched in the heat of the night again, first time in many years, and uh, okay. it's astonishing without without bagging on contemporary films much that it's it's grasp of kind of the complexities of uh, racial issues in America seemed more sophisticated than. I don't know the movie that won Best Picture last year. It's, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, yeah. <laughs> well, then, didn't they say the Green Book seemed like the best picture of 1967? Yeah, which was, and I would argue that. It's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good example. Yeah, do you know? I just worked out what that Bing is from. It's not my phone. It's this laptop that I'm talking to you from. Ah, uh, belongs to Jenna. That's where the sound's coming from. Oh, is she getting mail? Is that what she's getting mail. And every time she gets mail, uh, she's popular. <laughs> it's binging. Huh? I don't get that much mail. No. Anyway, never mind. You haven't had any mail in a while, Jenna. So we're going <laughs> to <laughs> Okay. So we have, so in my uh, group of American films, um, there is a film that I, there's two more, there's three more films here that I think are great uh, and I love. And one is E.T. I think E.T. is a remarkable film about an outsider and acceptance and tolerance. Oh, interesting. Okay. Again, that's what I bang on about all the time, right? And how genius to take the story of a baby alien <laughs> to make us make children understand empathy and make them understand tolerance. And it's the adults who don't understand empathy and tolerance, you know, but the kids do. I think it's a genius film on that level in terms of teaching kids uh, about the other, Right. you know. Um, Yeah. That's how I see the world, right? I'm bloody always the other trying to be mainstream. (laughs) Um, also an American film. Again, see, I didn't even plan this film to be this, but it is in some ways. This is one of my favorite American comedies. I actually think it's a perfect film. Perfect in terms of script, perfect direction, perfect performances. Every single character, all the sporting cars, absolutely perfect. And that is Tootsie. Ah, uh, I we I had a weird feeling you were going there. Um, really? Yeah, yeah. Yes, I agree. I you love that film, don't you? I do love it. I don't know how you don't. Um, yeah, it's it's. Uh, it, 
And at the time, remember when it came out, it, it felt to me like they were making, I loved it. I felt like Dustin Hoffman particularly was making too much about the importance of it, which it, it, it felt lovely and slight. And I look at it now and you realize it's, it's not slight at all. It's, um, well, when you look at it in the context of the Me Too yeah. <laughs> campaign, you know, it was quite prophetic in that respect, yes. you know, because, um, you know, he keeps calling her Tootsie, Sweetie, and all that. And she's like, no, I'm not. My name is Dorothy. You know, call me by my name kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, because it kind of got uh, lost in the romance, really, between Jessica Lang and Dustin Hoffman. It became that as opposed to the politics, you know, but that's okay. Yeah. You know, that's, that's okay. That's, it, it made its point. Um, but it was also a great film about acting and actors. Yeah. And, um, and then sort of, you know, as a director, obviously you work with um, a lot of actors and, you know, there, and, and a lot of your work is, is also psychotherapy, you know, and in trying to get the best out of your cast, you know, you have to sort of go to places where you're not always trained to go, you know, in order to help them. And, and often the reasons that they became an actor becomes clear. And and so I think Tootsie is a great film. I mean, Terry Gar, I mean, what a performance. That is like, oh, my God, fantastic. And the way she portrays actresses who are slightly on the edge, you know, and are judged by what they look like. Right. And then this whole thing about, how, you know, the, how, you know that wonderful scene where she's talking about Dorothy, and what she doesn't like about Dorothy as an actress. And um, it's a great film about agenda as well and acting. And then it has some of the best lines ever, right, in any movie. Um, you know, that close-up scene with the cameraman, you know. Yes. I think you should, you know. Pull back. Uh, how yeah, how far do you want to go back? How about Cleveland? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then when she's doing her big reveal at the end, and then the camera goes in close, and, they, and, and someone says, go closer, and everyone goes, not too close. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a – they have this thing. Uh, I mean, that movie needs to be re-released as a quote-along movie. Uh, so sure. we sit in the theatre and say the dialogue. I also, you know what, it's a small thing. I feel like was that. I feel like it was the first time I saw Bill Murray in something that wasn't wildly exaggerated cartoon. Well, also, he gets no billing, right? But he's actually he's playing a he's human a, being in a, a story about part. human beings instead of the usual kind of at that point crazy cartoon he was. Uh, and and that was kind of a revelation too, was that he could do that and be hilarious. Well, he's a straight man, right? Right, and very, but a very funny very, one, <laughs> and very funny. But he doesn't move very much right. in that film. Yeah. He's very static, yeah. actually. And that's what was so great, you know, because the other, you know, because Hoffman's character's all over the place and right. running around. So it was a, it was a very good uh, decision on Bill's part to actually, he just literally sits like this, or he's eating cottage cheese, I think, in a scene. Uh, but he's very static, and that, that works so well against all the other craziness that's going on. And, of course, his famous line, that is one nutty hospital <laughs> at the end. Um, and then... You've got mail. You've got mail. She's got mail. <laughs> Jen's got mail. 
Um, I'm going to the other film that I'm sure lots of people talk about, but I I don't know quite how this fits into my choice structure, but it I don't care. It's it is an institution and I love this film so much for all kinds of reasons, and that's it's a wonderful life. Oh, yeah. um, I mean life affirming in every way and you know the like obviously my parents struggled a lot when they came to Britain you know so I really relate to it in terms of that experience of you know people like my my dad and his generation sort of struggling and you know my dad was never suicidal but you know he didn't fear death you know and uh, he used to say things like, he said, when it's my time to go, he says, don't waste money on a funeral. Put me in one of these black trash bags and throw me in the river. <laughs> you know, it's not worth the money. Spend the money on something else. So he kind of had that attitude of like, um, you know, it, life isn't all what you think it is. You know, towards the end of his life, he kind of had that attitude. and. I think as a director, I'm getting emotional now because this film makes me emotional. I think as a director, someone like me in my position, oh my God, I don't want to get emotional. <laughs> I don't want to get emotional. <laughs> it's hard not to with that film. Yeah, isn't it? Though? I, I, if I, if I, um, give you a minute to collect, but, uh, yeah, I also, if I were an actor and I needed to draw on something to, to bring out a certain kind of crying, you know, if I, if I wanted to burst into tears is, um, the look on Jimmy Stewart's face when he is reunited with his children yes. in that movie. Oh God. <laughs> it's just. Oh my so, god! And it all it strikes me that 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 there's a line from uh, a commonality from that to your film, uh, your films, and and the work of Bruce Springsteen is is that uh, it's all very sincere, and it all, uh, in my opinion, completely eschews sentimentality. Yes, well, it's about ordinary people, yeah, who are tr- struggling to get by. I think that's what the link is. And I think as a film director, I often say, I don't have the luxury to just go out and make a film and say, oh, hell, I want to make that film. I always feel that I have, I always have a responsibility, um, that I have been given this voice and and these skills, and I have to go out and make a difference. And boy, does that make that film make a difference. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would aspire to make a film like that. My God, it's it makes a difference, you know, and it's this amazing um, way of bringing us all together um, and, you know, and teaching you empathy of the human condition, you know. And I love the black woman in it. She's great. (laughs) You know, I love that she gives him all her savings, you know. I love that moment as well. That's the bit that always gets me, you know. Well, it's also it's very it's political and in, in in the best way. It's it's very oh, political. Yeah. Very. I I was uh, worked um, was involved with a theater a few years ago that 
uh, I can't, we were, we we're going to do some kind of cine family. They wanted to do a, a screening that tied in with, um, remember the Occupy movement? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but the idea was to do an Occupy sort of film festival and they were going to screen some movie on the side of a building. And I realized as we were having this conversation, it was like the perfect movie to show is, yes. is, is, is it's a wonderful life. It's kind of, it, it, in its own weird way, it's a great movie for the Occupy Wall Street movement. Yeah. Well, absolutely. Because it is saying that we are all connected. We are all the same. We are all connected. Yeah. Um, that's that's what makes us human. And I hope that's what um, Blinded by the Light is saying too, you know, because it's this extraordinary story of, of a version of America yeah. told, told through the eyes of a 16-year-old Muslim Pakistani kid, you know, who sees America through Bruce's eyes. So it's a sort of way of, you know, I mean, I was as surprised as anyone at Sundance with, with the way the movie played. I, I sat in that theatre and I thought people were genuinely going to be worried about how I had opted Springsteen into Luton and into this Pakistani family. I thought that some of the audience is definitely not going to like what I've done with Springsteen's words and music, particularly in America. And so I was ready for that. I was waiting for that, you know. But I had to tell the story the way I saw it. And I said, well, this is how I see it. So I was waiting for that. But that never happened, you know. Uh, and, and it won't either. So the movie's still got to come out. But yeah. <laughs> sitting in that theater and seeing how people were taking to that movie and then, and then certain scenes, the way they played the scene in the passport office, um, you know, and like, I thought the the roof of the theater was going to come off, like the way people cheered at that. And then at the very end, it just, it was like, I just sat there and I thought, oh my God, I've made um, a kind of feel good film for America right now, unintentionally. That was not my intention. You know, my intention was to make an anti Brexit film. That's what I was doing. <laughs> well, you know, uh, um, it encompasses but, all yeah. those things. It does. It does. And it's particularly and I, it's particularly relevant now that Mr. Potter is president. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I I you know uh, that that kid's story was my story. I mean, the the um the differences in his life and my life uh were so negligible. It's ridiculous and I'm I'm a white guy who grew up in Philadelphia, you know. <laughs> and there's not a moment in that film where I'm going, I can't relate to this. It was as far as I'm concerned, you were, you know, it was, it was my story. And, um, that's the beautiful thing about the film. It, uh, well, I wanted it to feel like when, you know, that first time you hear music or you hear something that speaks to you, yeah. how that takes you over. And, uh, so in that sense, I think even though it is about this kid, I was really trying hard to, to tell a story that would make everybody feel like it's their story more so than I have done in the past. And and really as a direct result of trying to counter all the uh, division talk that that I see around me and the, uh, and the, and the, um, and the use of the race card uh, to divide us, you know? So uh, yeah, I, I, I really, you know, I really pushed everything I had to say, no, I won't let this happen. I, w- I won't let, I, I, I will make people believe there's another way. You don't have to divide people. 
there is another way and that actually the reality is that we are all connected you just have to open your eyes to it yeah. that was the point i think it's destined to be your most popular film i think it's certainly my best film as a director you know but thank you for that yeah, that'll be you. good at least i don't have to keep making bender like beckham over and over again <laughs> They're just like, oh, oh, it's not Bender like Beckham. I'm like, yeah, freaking hell, it's not. I'm not going to make that film again, am I? So, and I, have, um, I, have a, I have a script about a, um, uh, a, a French Chinese kid who um, uh, gets into Ario Speedwagon. Can I uh, send you that? And <laughs> <laughs> Only if you sing me the best Ario Speedwagon. <laughs> I, I don't. Think right I now. But I just want to, we we usually don't talk much about people's work, but I gotta say the the some of the musical sequences in that because they're not uh, I don't even know how to describe them because it's not a musical, but there are these wonderful sequences where he's singing on top of Bruce Springsteen songs, but he's not bursting into song like he's a character in a musical. He's no, bursting into it's, song. It's it's like the classic musical. So when when I was a kid, I, the thing I that I resisted about musicals was that the story stopped and people sang. Right. And I, I remember the first time I saw The Wizard of Oz. I just I wanted to see what was going to happen. I was like, right. "Why are they singing? Why are they singing?" Yes, you know. But that's but that's the whole point. And when they do sing, uh, it's a different reality, right? But and so in this it. movie, well, it well, is. Sort of. I mean, it's it's it, you saw La La Land. I mean, you know, right. it's it's a popular trope that people like. And in this movie, people start to sing, and 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 numbers happen. You but know, they're still sort of happened. rooted in reality. I mean, the Thunder Road sequence is so beautiful because on the one hand, it is this crazy movie musical scene. And on the other hand, it's a guy singing on top of his Walkman to a girl across the street that seems yeah. very, um, it's not like we enter a different reality entirely. Is one of no, the I mean, it was important to me that I, it wasn't a musical in that sense. Yeah. Or, and, it wasn't, and it wasn't certainly it wasn't a jukebox musical. Yes. So when I, when I was um, writing, you know, my drafts, I had all Springsteen's lyrics out around me, and I would, and I was sort of picking the lyrics as if they were dialogue. And so in the script, I had character, character, and then I had Springsteen, and I would put some of his dialogue in mm -hmm. as if it was a script. And so the idea was that the songs were part of the fabric of the of the narrative, and that we didn't do exactly what Joe says that we stopped for a song, that right. we made them, you know, we we we. I try to weave them in and out a lot, a lot more than the only time we do stop is born to run. Born to run. That is yeah. the, but that's born uh, to run. Come on. <laughs> Can you imagine the pressure on me? Of yes. Like, taking these, like my most iconic song and thinking, okay, how am I going to pictureize this? Yes. In a way that Springsteen's not disappointed yeah. and that non Springsteen fans aren't disappointed and people who think they've come to see an edgy, Social realist movie aren't disappointed. I mean, yeah, that's that yeah. was tough. But then you just got to do what you think is right, don't you? And I think, uh, yeah, that's what I was going for. So I talk about two movies that I think are really great that should be re-released. Okay, isn't that part of your thing? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, and then there's one film I'm going to end with that I really, really love a okay. lot. Okay. So, so the two films that um, there is a there's a great film that. I'm not sure what you guys have seen. It's by a British uh, black director called Horace Ove, and it's called Playing Away. You heard of this movie? Nope. Wow. Even okay. Joe shaking his head. Okay, so this was a movie. You got to have a place to see these pictures, you know. They yes. just they just pop into your eyeballs. You, know? you have to actually be able to see them. You see everything <laughs> if you're aware. <laughs>
<laughs> so this movie was made around the same time as My Beautiful Laundrette mm. and all those film four movies. And it never really saw the light of day. And it's oh. such a shame. Oh. And it's, um, you, I see you're looking it up there. <laughs> Shh, don't tell them. <laughs> he spends half and, the podcast on his phone looking up. You know, people, people mention pictures, you know, the birth of a nation. What's that? He's, he's always clicking. What is that? I just like to make sure. I'm, yep. 1987. 87. That's right. Two years after Lord. Oh, and by the way, just it's, it's on Amazon prime right now. Right. So people can see it. it. Is? Yes. Oh yes. Let's publicize that movie. Yeah. Go. So <laughs> playing way is a film about uh, a group of black guys from Brixton different generations, young, old, again, all Manesque, right, who are a cricket team who get invited to this sleepy little English village, the countryside, as, as part of their, we're helping starving kids in Africa week um, to go to this village to have a friendly game of cricket. Of cricket. So it's urban British uh, community meets English, sleepy English village community. And um, and it's, you know, the comedy and chaos ensues. But it was, it's a film that, I mean, I just loved it when I saw it because I was like, wow, this is the Britain that's around me. This is the Britain that I see and this is the Britain we never see on screen, you know. And Norman Beaton was in it, very fine British actor. And he's kind of slightly estranged from his kids. And so there's a father-kid story going on. There's a black guy who's very well-to-do, who's married to a white woman. I mean, there's lots of different characters in it who are all doing different things. And it's the sort of, and they go to this village and they're invited as guests. But there, there's, uh, that's a lot of surprising things happen as well as obvious things happen there too. But it was just the idea that here's this wonderful story being played out of lies that you never see on the cinema screen. And, right. and that really right. struck me. And, and that they're in control of the depiction. Horace Ove is in control of what you are seeing. And it's not all steeped in the problematic. There's a lot of fun in there and there's lots to celebrate. But it was a great cross-section of Britain and Black British and White British culture at that time in 87. And there's great music in it as well. Mm. Um, and so I'm sad that not many people saw that film. And I think if it was released now, I think it would do really well. And I'm so glad it's on Amazon Prime. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm going to watch it tonight. Oh, excellent. Excellent. You have to tell me what you think. And then the other film that I really, really loved when I, and I watched this before I made Bend It Like Beckham. And I've made quite a lot of coming of age stories, um, as you know. And, and it's a genre that I, I, I like because I feel like I can, I can, I can teach empathy, and I can, and I can empower girls, and I can get in when they're young. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's why I like doing that genre. But um, Lucas Moodison's first film uh, was called. It had two titles. It was called Fucking Amol, and it was also called Show Me Love. Right. And, and for the people, for the places that didn't want to put the other title on the yes. marquee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I saw it as "Show Me Love," and then someone told me it's called "Fucking Amol," and I was like, "What a great name!" 
So Emil is this uh, small town in Sweden, sleepy little town in Sweden where nothing happens. Have you guys seen this movie? I have not. Have you seen no, it, Joe? No, oh, no, I've read oh. about it. Oh, what? Okay, here's a treat for you. What a treat. So it's this small town and this family move in and this daughter is really awkward and and is trying to fit in. Um, and there's the cool kids. And, and one of the girls is quite maverick and she's the one who's trying to get out of Amol. She just, and there's scenes of her standing on the highway, trying to hitch a ride out. And, and it's, it's, it's about being trapped, you know, in a small town, being trapped and being bigger than anyone thinks you are and wanting things more than, than you're ever going to be given. And having to, you know, people say, just put up and shut up. This is your life. And her, every bone in her body saying, this isn't my life. And in it, there's some wonderful observations of uh, gender and masculinity, because the guys are all like, you know, they're all like 12, you know, but they're all acting like they're 25 or something. And they're all sort of like, you know, like there's a wonderful scene where they're all sort of going over, you know, mobile phones and looking at phones and, and like trying to be really mannish about them, but they're just little kids. And it's um, the, um, the 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 woman who wants to get out. She's like amazingly charismatic, and the girl who is the the outcast uh, is struggling and kind of has some lesbian tendencies. And that's another reason she's an outcast, and she doesn't know how to do it. And she She's very scared of life and that and at one point it's her birthday and she invites people over and no one turns up and the mother's made roast beef and she's like having a row with her mother saying, Who makes roast beef for a party? No wonder I'm weird, it's because you're weird and my whole life is fucked up and blah blah blah. And it and she gets quite suicidal actually. And it's so it's about not fitting in. And then the I'm gonna spoil the ending for you. Um oh. then <laughs> And then the and then the way well I won't spoil it but the way <laughs> the way the resolution happens is one of the best resolutions ever in a movie, you know I love it where you never know how they're going to work you know because of right. course I'm sure you know there are many people who are annoying like my husband who will sit in a movie and within ten minutes say okay so she's going to do this he's going to do that da, 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 and that's what's going to happen and I'm like I know but don't tell me you know right. I still on the journey right because he's a writer okay yes, so he's yes. always like okay this 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 is so no one will say what the end of this movie is going to be actually um and then when it happens it's so joyous it's amazing so i won't tell you the ending now because you're going to watch it yeah. but it's uh i think it's his best film i think he went a bit dark after that but it was uh it's a wonderful uh, a story again of tolerance actually and acceptance of who you are and there was another film i was going to mention in this bracket this bracket of a film where when you start watching it you will never ever ever guess what the ending is and that is the story of the weeping camel you seen that I, I know about it, but I haven't seen it. Wow, she's she's yeah no i have not i have not nor has joe <laughs> these are festival films ah yes <laughs> Outside of films, right? <laughs> um, the story of the weeping camel. Didn't it win an Oscar? I think it did, right? Yeah. Uh, won an Academy Award. Um, 
this is an incredible film about, I mean, the best thing about this film is that if you don't know anything about it, don't know anything about it, just start watching it. It will hook you in and it has the most remarkable ending that will have you in floods of tears, right? And you don't even know why you're crying. You have no, <laughs> you don't even know why am I crying so much? It's primeval. Well, the, the camel is crying, so you should. Oh, be that's, that, that should have been the first clue. <laughs> yeah, but why are you crying? Because the camel's crying. That's the point. <laughs> you don't know why the camel's crying, and that when you know why the camel's crying, you're like, oh, oh my god. It's a revelation. I mean, no one could write that, honestly. No one could write that movie. The way you have to see it. It's incredible, that ending of that movie. Wonderful. Yeah. I, um, is, is it uh, I, 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 asking for a friend? Now, my, my wife is um, uh, hugely empathic to animals, and she can't watch anything in which even a fake animal gets harmed. Is, is, this, is there any harm done to animals? Is this is, yeah. this, this okay. is not, like, like, not like Bresson's Balthazar movie. Oh <laughs> God! Yeah, I can't show her that. <laughs> no, this is this is it. that sleeping uh, weeping camel fits entirely into everything that I've been saying Wonderful. today. Okay. Yeah, it's okay. very life affirming. And then my final film, which is incredibly life affirming, and such a beautiful treat, which I know you guys will have seen over and over again. I'm sure is Ozu's Tokyo Story. Oh yeah. Uh, oh. Ah, that's like a warm, glowing, wonderful treat to watch at any time, anywhere, whenever it's on in any cinema, I go and see it on the big screen. And it's ageless, totally ageless. And and again, it's about, you know, a different culture, obviously, very Japanese. But what's so wonderful about it is another thing that I love to make films about is intergenerational stuff, parents and kids, uh-huh. you know, and the drama within that, you know, I love to mind that drama. And Tokyo Story is breathtaking in how with so little dialogue, so little, it tells so much about the chasm between parents and kids. Uh um, in all generations. I mean, that film is, uh, you know, from the fifties, but it's totally relevant today yeah. and, yeah. and still tells the story of parents and kids today in any culture, any time and the way, how we deal with our parents and how our parents deal with us. And of course, you know, technically it's beautifully shot, you know, he always has the same angles, right? Same baby legs, same angles, same framing, Everything, you know, there's a few shots outside of Tokyo with cars going past, you know. You feel like someone forced him to do that, you know, <laughs> <laughs> to get to open up the movie, get some air in, you know. But uh, the storytelling is masterful. And again, that, I think that's the thing that I love about it is that when I get going as a director, you know, I get very emotional and very uh, obsessed and I feel like I really have to always be in control of the audience's emotions at any time. I'm like, I'm going to let you laugh now. You can laugh now. Great. And now I'm going to kick you in the stomach with this. And now <laughs> I'm going to do this. Now I'm going to do this. And now I'm going to, I'm kind of, I do that. I, I pour over films in the edit room to make sure I get the emotional, emotional nuances and journey correct. 
the way that I, I want you to. Whereas uh, I just feel that Ozu just probably sat there and said a few words to his DP, to his cast, and just let it all happen. And he, and as a master, it just all happened without much effort. But, <laughs> uh, that's how I, that's what I think. That is, of course, the job is to make it look effortless. Yes. Yes. He does. Great uh, film. Wow. Um, well, thank you. Thank so you so much. much That's a wonderful conversation. And, You've got uh, time for a few more calls on your uh, computer. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and let me get it. Cause I saw something, um, blinded by the light is opening August 16th in the States. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. It's yes. opening this, this coming Friday. When, we're, coming Friday, when we, yes. when we drop, not this. Good. And, um, yeah. cannot, cannot recommend it highly enough. And as I, as I said to Saf, um, I'm, I'm actually, you'd think I'd be the easiest audience. I'm probably the toughest audience for a movie like this because I have a, my immediate reaction when you walk into my church and my choir and start singing to my choir is, uh, I, I don't like it. Um, I'm very resistant to stuff that, uh, uh, plays to all the things I love. And this did it so beautifully. You won me over. Uh, it's, it's a fantastic oh, film. Um, thank you. Thank you. One of my favorite, I don't often read reviews. I don't know if other people do. I, I, my husband reads everything and I, and he tells me a few odd things. I tend not to, but in, in, um, not because I'm being churlish, but it's just, I just, yeah. I don't know, just don't do it. But anyway, um, in at Sundance, there was sort of like amazing reviews, uh, all over. But the, my favorite was somebody who said, um, I defy the most cynical of cynics. Yes. <laughs> the most cynical critic can go and see this movie and you will go in with your arms folded going, I'm not going to like it, I'm not going to like it, I'm not going to like it. But by the end, it yep. will get you. <laughs> I warn you, it will get you. It was some sort of review like that and I was like, oh, that's really neat. I like that because, you know, you, you do – I mean, I do wear my heart on my sleeve and, um, you know, so, and often I do think cynics, there are people who, who have a cynical view of the world. And I think that's one reason why I love Frank Capra so much, mm -hmm. you know, because, uh, because, um, you know, and it's one for life because it's just unashamedly not cynical. And I try and do that. And and sometimes I like I get lambasted for it, particularly in Britain, where a lot of people are cynics. <laughs> um, especially these days. Especially these days. Yeah. Especially. Well, well, these days they've got something to be cynical about. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so yeah, so good. I'm glad you went in uh, unsold and came out sold. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, and, by, and there's one moment I got to my my because um, <laughs> it taps into some. Stuff that all of us uh, have been through. I think my, I can give away a tiny line. Um, uh, I, one of my favorite moments watching the film is when his friend says to him, he's talking about his girlfriend. He goes, oh, is she a Bruce fan? And he goes, not yet. And my wife just burst out laughing next to me. <laughs> she's lived that. <laughs> yeah. He says, not yet, but I'm working on it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> just say that to your wife. You know uh, oh, no, she's a huge fan now. But when we met, oh, it was, yeah, oh. yeah. <laughs> One of the finest moments for me was when I had to show Bruce the film. Oh, God. Because, uh, yeah, he didn't, he never asked to see it. He gave me permission to use everything, but he never asked to see it. And in the cutting room, I was like, when I did my cut, 
I was like, I've got to show this guy the film, man. I mean, yeah. I've got 19 of his songs. What if he hates it? Right. What if he hates <laughs> his classic tunes, you know? At least he's got to have some kind of say in changing something or whatever. And um, so I said, I really need to show it to him. And he went, okay. So I went over to New York and I sat in uh, in the screening room. He was on Broadway at the time. And I was like was a little nervous, but I had, as a director, every decision I made uh, was, will Bruce like this? Right. Every decision. I didn't care about the financiers. I didn't care about anyone else. I was like, will he like this? Will he approve of this? You know, and in a way, you know, I mean, it was like wanting his, uh, you know, your parental um, acceptance. Like right. I sure. needed that sure. you know, validation, you know, um, because you know, because I love the man so much and his work has meant so much to me over the years. Um, and then uh, at the end of the movie, there was absolute silence because it was him and a few managers. Uh, but obviously the managers didn't want to say anything. Right. They had to wait. He said. And then I thought, okay, well, this hasn't quite gone down the way I thought, but I'm going to go down, put the lights on, get my tape, and I'm going to get the fuck out of there. So they can all have their conversation because I figured they needed the conversation. And as I went down, um, I put the lights on and I went to the tape machine and I turned around and he was walking towards me. And then he gave me a kiss and he put his arms around me uh, and he said, uh, he said, thank you for looking after me so beautifully. Uh, and I was genuinely like, what have I just seen? Wow. It made my music so relevant again to today. Because yeah. all those yeah. songs he was writing in the 70s and yeah. early 80s. Yep. So, um, yeah, that was uh, – you were talking about Bruce earlier, so I just wanted to mention that. Yeah, story. no, that's lovely. That's lovely. And imagine what would happen if he hadn't liked it. You'd have to replace them all with REO Speedwagon songs. That, that <laughs> would very, very I'd different. Still be movie. in the editing room. Yeah. <laughs> Gorinder, thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. Congratulations on the amazing film. Um, people, go go see this movie. You will love it, even even if you're a Bruce agnostic, which is a state of mind I do not understand or endorse. But this will <laughs> this will get you. Uh, thank you. Thanks a lot. Our show was recorded in beautiful downtown Burbank. The official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the Movies That Made Me. Spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and more time actually watching and playing what you want with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts.